attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and no matter what you may be hearing in the background right now, I assure you, I'm not in the middle of a war zone. But it is the 4th of July, which should give you an idea of how long ago I recorded this, and I live next door to some, shall we say, very exuberant celebrants of the 4th. So, there you go. Most of the time, this show's all about comics, movies, and TV shows, but you've caught me during what's turning out to be a, I think it works out to something like a year's worth of six-episode miniseries dedicated to one particular topic, theme, or character, or idea, or just whatever. For example, take this current miniseries that I'm hashing through right now. This is just about the middle of a miniseries dedicated to women in comics. I should say that I usually come up with some kind of cheesy name for these miniseries, but I just wasn't able to think of a title for a series about women in comics that didn't sound demeaning in some way, so I decided to just call this thing Women in Comics. How clever is that? Still. The idea here is pretty self-explanatory. Or should be, anyway. I mean, it's not really breaking news for me to say that comics are mostly dominated by men. That's not as true now as it was really even 20 years ago, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that, but at the same time, I still think you can accurately say that comics tend to be about men and created by men. And look, I don't want to sound too politically correct or anything, because that shit really pisses me off when I listen to podcasts, and I'd never do that to you guys, but as it happens, I like women in comics, so why not talk about comic books about female characters? Maybe I've read them before, maybe they're totally new to me, but either way, they're still about women. Seemed logical at the time, anyway. And as it happens, there were no shortage of cool female characters to choose from. One of the best, in my view, is Carol Danvers, also known as Ms. Marvel. For reasons I'm going to get into a little bit later, I've always loved Ms. Marvel. I dig her. I dig her attitude. I dig her outfit. I mean, there's just not very much about Ms. Marvel that doesn't work for me on a lot of levels. And... That's about as good a transition as I can ask for into Ms. Marvel number one. Editor-in-chief is our old friend Joe Casada. Cover artist is Frank Cho. Writer is Brian Reed. Penciler is Roberto Della Tour. Inker is Jimmy Palmiotti. Colorist is Chris Sotomayor. And letterer is Dave Sharp. Carol Danvers, the former Avenger, once known as Warbird, has returned to her original identity. That is to say, Ms. Marvel. She flies down through New York City where she finds Stiltman terrorizing some citizens. Stiltman flings a car through the air where it nearly strikes a group of children. Ms. Marvel swoops down, catches the car, and throws it back at Stiltman. She then finishes him off with an energy blast. Later... Carol meets with her close friend, Jessica Drew, which is to say Spider-Woman. 
Carol tells Jessica uh, about her experiences with Stiltman and the fact that she's really yet to establish a true name for herself. She further details her recent meeting with a public relations agent, Sarah Day. Sarah promises to help Carol refine her public image. Carol leaves Jessica and flies across town looking to promote herself, when suddenly a glowing green object streaks past her and she begins to chase after it. Concerned over whether this unidentified object poses a threat, Ms. Marvel contacts Captain America, but Cap's busy fighting some Hydra agents with Agent 13 and is in no position to assist her right now. The green object crashes on the outskirts of Spalding, Georgia, and explodes in a blinding flash of light. Ms. Marvel descends into the epicenter of the blast and discovers that the cause of the phenomenon is a horde of brood aliens. The brood begin mercilessly attacking nearby pedestrians. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, one thing that I really dig about this series is how Reed set up superheroes in the Marvel Universe as a, a kind of a subset of the entertainment world. And I guess what I mean by that is there's a celebrity culture that revolves around superheroes where they have publicists, there are tabloid TV shows about them, and there's other entertainment industry type stuff that's going on. Now, Carol wants to increase her profile. And she at least says it's because that she wants to be the best that she can be. So finding a publicist and making appearances on superhero media TV shows is what she thinks are her best options. And if you think about it, that's actually a really good point. I mean, just what the hell do you do if you've got powers? I mean, let's face it. Bad guys usually don't uh, call you ahead of time to let you know that they're about to rob a bank. Or, I guess there's another one, aliens don't send you an email letting you know the date and time for their next invasion. So, if what you want to do is use your sheer presence as some type of deterrent, you pretty much have to get out there and market yourself. You have to start a, a, a blog or something. You have to make media appearances. You have to go out on patrol and make your presence known. But this is still a foreign experience for Carol. She's an outsider in the entertainment industry and honestly isn't totally comfortable with some aspects of what it takes to make a name for herself in the media. Now, I can't help think, thinking that it'd be easier for her if she was willing to rejoin the Avengers, but Carol's issue there is that she may have been an Avenger in the past, but she's never truly earned a spot on the team. And if you think of the Avengers as the superhero all-stars of the Marvel Universe, yeah, she, I, she's got a point. But as it is, Carol's stuck in a place where most people don't even recognize her. And the few people who do recognize her don't take her all that seriously. And so it's because of all that, Carol's plan is to build up her cred as a solo hero. But the problem there is you're kind of stuck with dealing problems you find on your own. So when a, uh, when, when a spaceship crashes in Spalding, Georgia, and some really nasty-looking aliens crawl out, you pretty much have to deal with it yourself. So it's a little bit of a pain in the ass. Another thing about this issue that plays is Carol's lunch with Jessica Drew, which, as I said, otherwise known as Spider-Woman. They just have this vibe with each other, and it's just hysterical to read. There's this kind of sisterly bond, and as big a Civil War fan as I am, their little moment there hits hard because I know I, I know about Carol and Jessica's little moment in Civil War, shall we say, and it hits harder precisely because of how close they already are with one another. So, anyway, something to think about. On to Ms. Marvel, number two. Bye. Honestly, it's by the same creative team, so we can just skip that. Ms. Marvel is in Spalding, Georgia, which has just been invaded by the spacefaring brood. 
Legions of the insectoid aliens land on the planet and begin slaughtering innocent civilians. Ms. Marvel dives into the thick of battle and begins tossing brood left and right. She slices several more in half by way of her concussive bio-blasts. She hears one of the brood shrieking about something known as crew. While distracted, another brood attacks her from behind and wraps its tail around her throat. She succeeds in blasting it away, but several more aliens converge on the scene. Suddenly, an entirely different alien arrives to lend Ms. Marvel an unexpected hand. This is Crew. Crew blasts through several more brood, but then levels his firearms at Ms. Marvel. She releases a concussive burst which tears Crew's head off, but it regrows instantly on the spot. Crew takes hold of Ms. Marvel and uses a telepathic attack to rip images out of her memory. Crew learns of a place called McCord Army Base. Crew then drops Ms. Marvel and takes off, leaving her at the mercy of the brood. She continues to fight until she finds a brood that's willing to tell her about Crew. She learns that Crew's been slaughtering brood in outer space, and the aliens have retreated to Earth to stage their final battle. Aware of Crew's telepathic abilities, they planted the idea in his mind that a mineral known as Caverite would be, uh, could be used as a weapon. However, the Brood are secretly aware that Caverite is completely unstable and is likely to destroy Crew. Ms. Marvel zaps a few more Brood and then flies off to find Crew. She arrives at McCord Army Base and finds Crew inside of an underground vault which contains specimens of Caverite. Carol has had experiences before with Caverite, and, and she's well aware of its harmful properties. She tries to stop Crew from taking control of the Caverite crystal, but it's too late. As he grabs it in his hand, a blinding burst of light fills the entire chamber. To be continued. This issue's a little bit more action-oriented, and so because of that, there's a little bit less to say here, but still a few notes of interest. It's pretty clear that Ms. Marvel doesn't have any sort of code against taking life. She'll do whatever she has to do in order to end a threat. If that means killing aliens, she's fine with it. Also, Carol's total lack of a public profile is pretty obvious here as the residents of Spalding openly wish for someone better known like Iron Man or Thor or somebody else who could be there to protect them from the aliens rather than Ms. Marvel. And it's a little bit of humor in the middle of an alien, <clears throat> of an alien attack, but it's still got some sting to it. Another kind of neat part of this issue is Carol's complete lack of self-confidence. She's one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe, but here she is freaking out in the middle of a battle against aliens or kicking herself for being too slow. And... Honestly, it, it just works. So, anyway. Ms. Marvel, number three. Same creative team. The explosion of the Caverite crystal throws both Ms. Marvel and crew into low orbit. Ms. Marvel's at a major disadvantage as the explosion burned off all, uh, all the oxygen. And so, because of that, she's running out of air. As she flies back to Earth to catch her breath... She watches in shock as Spalding, Georgia, is reduced to a huge crater. Suddenly, Crew stabs her right arm from behind and Miss Marvel retaliates by punching him into outer space with her left arm. She then absorbs the energy on the Caverite crystal in Crew's weapon and in turn releases a massive explosion that obliterates Crew and throws Ms. Marvel back to Earth. The next morning... Newscasts report on the Spalding explosion, and the Fantastic Four is sent to investigate. There they find an unconscious Carol with her arm covered in a strange alien goo. Later, Carol gets her arm put in a cast and returns home, ignoring all the reporters who want her opinion on the Spalding event. But as she enters her apartment, she finds Sarah Day waiting for her, alongside the superpower news crew, and they're all ready for her interview. To be continued... So, another issue, another winner. Brian Reed's going pretty far out of his way to play Carol as a human who sometimes gets in over her head with these superhero adventures. She gets exhausted. She, she runs out of ideas for destroying her opponent. 
she gets chewed up by the bad guy's weapons, and she eventually just tries desperately to just end the threat already. And that leads into something else. Carol hasn't gotten a break during any of these issues so far. Except for lunch with Jessica, there's really never been a chance for Carol to just kick back, relax, crack open... Uh, I crack open a beer, order a pizza, and then just watch some TV. Whether it's Stiltman, Alien Invasions, or TV show interviews, Carol's always on. Even when she wants to be off. Her superhero life is always intruding on everything else. It's an interesting way to illustrate how she has to live because of the fact that she doesn't really have a secret identity to fall back on. Now... As I've gone through all of this, I realize that I haven't really said a whole lot about Roberto Della Torre's art here, but he's got a ton of glory shots in this issue. The best of which probably being that, that money shot of Ms. Marvel charging at crew in low orbit just above Earth's atmosphere. Della Torre's art is also interesting in that he tends to use the number of uh, panels per page to his advantage in order to tell the story. Now, don't get me wrong, he's not afraid to use splash pages here and there, but he's not a one-trick pony. Many of his pages also have six or seven panels on them as well. And his philosophy seems to be that giving each page the number of panel it needs, rather than always going for the flashy approach, which, I gotta be honest, I appreciate. Anyway, Ms. Marvel, number four. Same creative team as before. Seven years ago, Warren Traveler visited a magical pawn shop in search of a magical artifact known as the Eye of Watum. After acquiring uh, that object, he killed the shop owner and inserted the eye into his left eye socket. In the present... Carol's getting ready for her interview with the Superpowers News Show at her apartment. Her publicist, Sarah Day, informs Carol that her popularity has taken a downturn after what happened in Spalding, and the, the, interview, the interviewer also wants her opinion on the still-pending Superhuman Registration Act. When a crew member is seen playing with a cat, Carol mentions that she doesn't even own a cat, and from that deduces that something wrong is about to happen, and so she switches over to her Ms. Marvel outfit. At that moment, Traveler crashes into her apartment and attacks Ms. Marvel in order to avenge his defeat at her hands back in the, uh, in the House of M universe. After making sure the visitors are safe, Ms. Marvel incapacitates Traveler and takes him to Doctor Strange, who heals Carol's injured arm. Doctor Strange informs her that... uh, Traveler's uh, sanity is deteriorating, but believe it or not, that's only going to make him even more dangerous because of his magical powers. Also, Wong gives Carol a package, a new cell phone to replace the one that she lost. As soon as Carol gets it, Sarah calls her and informs her that she rented Carol a room at the Ritz under an alias while her apartment is is getting repaired. And incidentally, the alias is Linda Danvers, because hey... Nobody cares about that name. Doctor Strange asks Carol to leave Traveler under his custody, and she agrees to that, but as soon as Carol leaves, Traveler breaks free of his restraints and knocks Doctor Strange out. He then obtains the Wand of Watum, which increases his power. To be continued. So what did I think? Honestly, I'm not a big sorcery guy. I like Doctor Strange as a supporting character in the New Avengers, but stories that center too much on magic almost invariably bore the shit out of me because the entire thing is usually one big deus ex machina just waiting to happen. And I guess what I mean by that is it's hard to get invested in the peril of, I don't know, the eye of Fangorn rupturing and stealing everybody's left fucking shoe or something like that, when all Doctor Strange has to do is whip out the the fuck, the toenail of Thundera to stop it, you know? And that's basically what's going on all, all, all in this story. 
Traveler needs to find the right magical widget to increase his wizarding mojo, and then he'll be able to kick all the ass, and it's... Look, it's just... This type of thing just isn't my brand of vodka. And so, it's because of all that, it, it's a little hard to really enjoy all that much about this issue. I mean, it's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's just way too full of magical whoozy whatsis for me to really get into it. You know? And, like, it comes off as a sort of dick thing to say, maybe, but it's just I can't really think of a nice way to say it. So, there you go. Ms. Marvel, number five. Same creative team. While Carol's sleeping, she hears her new cat talking to her. Turns out, the cat's possessed by Doctor Strange, who asks Carol for help. Ms. Marvel flies to the Sanctum Sanctorum, watching as it emanates a large beam of magic directly into the, uh, into the night sky. She makes her way inside and finds herself in a different reality. Traveler's waiting for her and says that they're in a world where a swarm of insects eradicated mankind. He confirms Dr. Strange's suspicion that his continued use of magic has affected his own mind, but he's worked out a way around all that. By traveling to other worlds and acquiring more power sources, he can clear his mind and focus. Now, he has both the eye and the wand of Watum under his control. He teleports Ms. Marvel to the time when the swarm is about to destroy New York City, but after a really short struggle, Ms. Marvel forces him to take them back to their home reality. Doctor Strange arrives to assist her, but travel, uh, Traveler teleports away, casting a huge chain reaction in his wake. Combining their powers, the two heroes manage to contain the explosion. Three weeks later, Carol and her cat, now named Chewie, go back to her rebuilt apartment. Carol gets a call from Tony Stark, who asks, uh, who asks her to talk to him before she uh, speaks to Captain America. But as soon as she enters her apartment, she finds that Cap is already inside waiting for her. To be continued. Some other time. April of 2016 would be my guess. Anyway, more magical bullshit here. But this time it's a little more tolerable. If only because I know that the issue immediately following this one relates to Civil War. And I don't know why, but that just that makes a huge difference. Now, my suspicion here is the swarm of insects in this story probably relates to some previous storyline about which I know nothing. But that's just a guess. And either way, it doesn't really matter since the threat of it to Carol is introduced, developed, and then resolved all in this same issue. As a matter of fact, just in a few pages. And I can't shake the suspicion that this, this just is kind of a wink to some previous thing in continuity. Anyway. And yes, I do kind of get the idea that Carol and Doctor Strange are crushing on each other a little bit during this story. In fact, this issue especially. Now, I'd comment on that further, but that would mean considering Doctor Strange as a love interest for Carol, and I just don't give a damn about it. Mind you, I'm not criticizing this as a story element. I'm just saying that exploring that stuff inevitably means more magical bullshit that I've already talked to death, but that really is why it's not exactly my thing. What I will say, though, is I do kind of buy Carol not pursuing it a little bit more in this story. Right now, she's trying to get her superhero career lined up, and when you think about it, a fling with Doctor Strange probably isn't going to win her all that much credibility in the media right now. So, that much actually makes a lot of sense. I buy that. Anyway, other stuff. Through all these issues, Robert De La Torre kicked two, possibly three tons of ass with the art. Here, in this issue, there are three splash pages, none of which are gratuitous, or out of place, or, for that matter, just nothing really feels unnecessary. 
The splash page of the explosion of magical bullshit erupting from Doctor Strange's house really underscores how serious the danger is in all this. And honestly, same thing uh, can be said for the splash page showing the swarm of those zillions of insects arriving in New York to eat everybody. The splash page at the very end of the issue, honestly, that might have been a bit more shocking if I talked about what else was happening in the Marvel Universe at this time. Now, it wasn't, obviously, but it would have been a bit more of a kick in the balls in context. So, what I'm saying here is that Robert De La Tour used every page and every panel to maximum effect. And especially in 2006, which is when these comics came out, that was a time when it really seemed like 9 out of 10 people didn't know how to draw a page anymore, or, or, or maybe they just didn't have any discipline about it. But either way, I can't help thinking that's a pretty rare, uh, rare sort of, a pretty rare sort of work ethic for a comic book artist to have, at least at this time in the comic book industry. Now, I'd love to think that Robert De La Tour is still getting crap tons of work, but honestly, I only know him from this run of Ms. Marvel comics, so who knows? Bottom line, to me, Ms. Marvel's just a fun comic. Now, the familiar complaint most people have about comics these days is that they're just not fun to read anymore. Everything's always all dreary, dark. But here's a title where the lead character is a happy-go-lucky superhero who perpetually finds herself in weird, fucked-up situations, but somehow, it's like it just doesn't affect her. Ms. Marvel somehow rises above all the bullshit that life throws at her. Instead of allowing herself to get beaten down by life, she's determined to be the best that she can be. And she knows that she hasn't been the best that she can be up to now. But she doesn't wallow over that. She doesn't have page after fucking page of these depressing inner monologues about it. She just knuckles down and decides to take her life in a better direction. And honestly, female character or not, I think that's really cool. You know? But yes, the female character aspect is one reason I wanted to talk about Ms. Marvel in this series. She's really not obnoxious about the fact that she's one of the most powerful characters in the entire Marvel Universe. She just kind of rolls with it and works like hell to be as good as she knows that she can be. And what's not awesome about that? Now, Ms. Marvel's early publishing history might have had a few missteps to it. I'm going to let someone else tackle that one. My point, though, is there's basically nothing not to love about this comic series. The writing, the art, the characters, the tone, the style of this comic, it's all awesome. Now, as much as any comic book uh, that I've ever talked about on this show, people, you need to pick these comics up. Satisfaction guaranteed. If what you want are just fun superhero comics this is the title for you anyway so i think that's basically that be right back after these messages Comic books, mythology, video games, toys, Star Wars, just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks 
for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at Relatively Geeky Podcast. .blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. got a little bit of feedback to go through here. First item of business here that I've got, this is an email from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. The subject line is, so ends season one of Smallville, so I'll talk about something completely different. It is dated September the 12th. Now, if you hear explosions and shit in the background, like I said, this is the 4th of July, and a lot of people are Celebrating. So, anyhow. To get into uh, Prime's email, though, he writes, Greetings, Magnus. Found the review of Smallville interesting as always, and as for the class president, or student council, I doubt I'd have even cared who they were back in high school, let alone now. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, You know, Prime, I think I know what you're getting at there, and I did kind of shit talk my Stuco president and everything, but honestly, the guy really was a fucking dick. I mean, I'm not gonna name him by name because something, something legal ramifications, but I don't know. I mean, and, and yeah, he's the sort of litigious bastard that just might actually do it. If he found out that I was talking about him, he might actually try something, and I just, I don't need that kind of bullshit right now. So, anyway, it's just, does it really matter? Or, to me, you know, does it matter? Not really. And how much power does a, does a Stuco president really have when you think about it? At least as it's shown in a lot of TV shows and stuff. Not much. You know, it's just... It's one of those things that it, it, it kind of... It, I understand that there's usually some sort of a political metaphor that, the, uh, that a lot of writers and showrunners and those types always try to, always try to make in, the, in these sorts of things. But it's just... The office of Stuco president is in no way comparable to the actual power that a, the president of the United States has. It's not like being the student council president is somehow a microcosm of being the president of the United States. Fucking, it's not. Right? The two have nothing in common, you know? And uh, anyway, and so it's, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, you pick your battles in life. That, 
obviously didn't really ruin the episode for me or anything like that. I just, I felt like I couldn't let it slide, and I felt like I needed to say something. So I said something. Anyhow, get back into Prime's email, he writes. Pretty sure that the issue of the of Batman, the Brave and the Bold comic, where Batman pretends to be the United States president, swinging around Washington, D.C., and, and fighting, frankly applies as much as the class president being anything like the, U, the U.S. president. And yes, I tend to agree with that. Don't really have much else to say about uh, the other episodes, I'm afraid. It wasn't a lack of quality or such, as it was just... Is... As it just is, there really isn't much more for me to add to that. Okay, fair enough. On to the completely different topic is Scooby-Doo Team-Up by DC Comics. A fun, light romp through the DC universe as all the team-ups had been with DC superheroes. With Batman and Robin being mostly the Scooby-Doo team-up version slash Super Friends version of the characters, well... Other than when Robin was the Teen Titans Go version, and even the comic tried to hand wave the hell, tried to hand wave how the hell that could be the same Robin they worked with. But put the email on pause and say, I guess I'm not familiar with this comic, Scooby Doo Team Up. I guess I'm really not familiar with that. Now, obviously, I've heard of Teen Titans Go, and that's honestly that's one of those one of those animated series that I just don't get. So I didn't really mess with it. I didn't really bother with it when it was on TV. But anyway, but as to the, you know, as to Scooby-Doo team-up, that actually sounds kind of interesting. I'd be interested to give that a shot. So anyway, get back in the email, though. Prime writes. But in any case, the comic is a hoot and damn fun. It never fails to entertain with amusing jokes, such as a trio of thugs who dressed up as man-bats when the real thing was rumored to be around, saying... And we would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling superheroes. We also get to uh, see a Scooby Mite. Yes, a fifth-dimensional imp that is a huge fan of Scooby-Doo. And we see Scooby Snacks eating zombies. Sorry, Scooby Snack eating zombies. Yeah, not kidding when I mention the Super Friends thing, as that is the version of the world's greatest heroes we see. Even get to uh, see the 70s-era costume-clad Supergirl in the story as well. And things getting crazy for the gang as the ghosts, quote-unquote, turn out to be the Legion of Doom. Okay, I'm going to put this email on pause and say, that sounds friggin' punk rock. This comic just sounds like the coolest thing I've ever friggin' heard of. Now, excuse me while I pause for a moment here and uh, vape just a, just a little bit. Anyway, to get back into Prime's email, he writes, "There's also that Scooby and Shag- there's also that Scooby and Shaggy can cause great fear, admittedly in each other and themselves. But it is enough for Sinestro's ring to fly off and give them the Sinestro core costumes. Is it serious at all? Nope. Do I honestly care about uh, about the fact that it isn't? Not at all. I find it refreshing, especially uh, given the dark mess that Future's End is." Or as I call it, who gives a shit about this timeline that'll never count? Though, interestingly enough, the writer of the Scooby-Doo team-up, Sholly Fish, wrote the Future's End Action Comics one-shot, and also wrote most, if not all, of the backup stories in Grant Morrison's Action Comics run. And they also wrote one of the tie-in comics to the Batman, the Brave, and the Bold cartoon that got adapted into the cartoon itself. The episode being Batman Breaks His Leg and Green Arrow, Captain Marvel, Plastic Man, and Aquaman don Batman costumes and try to keep watch over the city while he recovers. It goes pear-shaped as you'd expect. I'm thinking autocorrect may have fucked you a little bit on that one, Prime. Anyway, to get back into his email, though, uh, he writes, And there also is all-new Batman The Brave and the Bold, Issue 4. The Bride and the Bold, and you got to check that one out, Magnus. Arrow's, uh, Arrow's annoyed that Wonder Woman is fighting supervillains instead of trying to bring peace to the world, strikes Diana and Batman with his, er- his arrows. 
And what follows is one angry Talia getting every single supervillain foe of both heroes. From the well-known to the obscure, and we see pretty much the entire DC universe versus the very massive rogues galleries both foes have at their wedding. And Batman acts like, quote, I broke free of the spell by seeing a special lady. Lady Justice, unquote. And to which Superman and Robin go, yeah, right. No, seriously, you sure there was another woman that helped with all that? Read the comic and we do see an infamous love interest of Batman trying to deal with the supervillain that Batman and Wonder Woman were fighting when the whole issue started. Seriously, read that comic as you will find it amusing. Well, I hope my Shollyfish goodness filled uh, email brightened your day. And pretty sure I've mentioned the bride and the bold before in an email in this show, but whatever. The issue am uh, amused me enough to be worth bringing up. Till all are one. And dude, you know what? I, it, it, it's funny that you should mention it, because I don't think that you've ever mentioned this before. I, or, or if you have, I, I don't remember it, and so it, I guess it comes to the same. But no, I truly don't think you've ever done that before. So, hmm. Anyway, next email. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. Uh, mostly because I want to talk about this one. This is an email from my old friend, Mark Lax. The subject line is Captain Marvel slash Superman slash the DCU, dated November the 12th, 2014. Mark writes, Hey, Magnus. Enjoy the talk about Jerry Ordway and Captain Marvel. I've not read The Power of Shazam. Being a huge Ordway fan, I guess that makes me a bad fanboy. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, well, I don't, know, I don't really know what qualifies as a bad fanboy anymore, but dude, you really do need to read it. Number one, it's Captain Marvel. Number two, it's not just Jerry Ordway, painted Jerry Ordway. It's just, those two things alone are, that pretty much does it for me. So, anyway, point is, I think you'll like it. Get back in the email, though. Mark writes, Anyway, it's kind of interesting how much DC wants the good captain incorporated in their universe. They were the ones responsible for the book getting axed in the 40s because he was so similar to Superman. Sure, as you pointed out, there are similarities in each one's universe, and I'm sure Beck was inspired by Superman, but to me, Captain Marvel as a character is very different. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what? I think that there's an episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality wrapped up in that, because I've read a fair amount of the Golden Age uh, Captain Marvel comics, and one of the things that strikes me pretty much right away is that I would say prior to about 1945 or so, the Golden Age Superman tended to be kind of rough and ready justice. You know, uh, he had two fists and he was not afraid to beat the shit out of people. Starting about the time uh, America dropped the bomb, though, and World War II came to an end, Superman sort of became more and more sci-fi oriented. And he just kind of went off in his own direction. But he started off like really grounded, telling these very sort of I don't know if I'd go so far as to say like street-level types of stories. But they weren't exactly the galaxy-spanning stuff that, you know, Superman had become by, uh, like, probably around 1960, 1965, around there. So, there's just, what I'm saying is that, I guess pre-1945 Superman and post-1945 Superman, they're pretty different from one another, and they sort of went off on their own, uh, in their own little directions at times. And what's interesting is that Captain Marvel, Golden Age Captain Marvel, whether it's before or after uh, 1945, it's pretty much the same. It's this really strange, very fantasy-oriented, I would say borderline surreal type of comic, right? And it's, it's just different, you know? I mean, somehow, Billy Batson's secret identity stays secret in spite of the fact that he switches from Billy Batson to Captain Marvel right in front of his enemies. But somehow it's like nobody knows who he is. And it's just this weird, surreal something. I don't know. I just, it really works for me. I, I really dig that era of, of Captain Marvel. Not taking anything away from that uh, Shazam miniseries of the 1970s that I think C.C. Beck actually drew. Not taking anything away from that series, but there was something special about uh, Captain Marvel 
you know, in the Marvel family, you had Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel, and it was, in a weird kind of way, it's that, that is kind of what I want from Superman in some ways, like that, that type of tone to it, you know? I'm of the opinion that Captain Marvel, he not only belongs in a sort of fantasy type of universe, a different type of universe than than Superman. I, w- I dare say a separate universe from Superman because that's how the character was originally conceived. And I just, I haven't really read all that many stories of Captain Marvel interacting with the rest of the DC universe and thought, I don't know, it's just, to me, it's not as good. You know, I think Captain Marvel belongs in his own his own universe. I mean, the way he was consistently portrayed, you know, throughout, no, not just the Golden Age, actually, through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, really uh, until recently when he was officially renamed Shazam and this whole New 52 thing. It, to me, this is just a character that fundamentally does not belong in the same universe as Superman, and I don't really think he belongs in the same universe as as any other DC character. He needs to be in the Fawcett universe, his own sort of independent universe that he's pretty much got to himself and the rest of the Marvel family. That, to me, is where the character works best. So, anyway, I didn't mean to rant at you or anything, so it's just that's just what I think. So to get back into Mark's email, though, he writes... Still, DC sued in The Captain, which at the time, I believe, was outselling Superman, got the old DC kick in the pants and goodbye Marvel family. Now, personally, I enjoy the character and his interaction with the DCU. I was happy they played a part in, or a big part in the 52 weekly series, hoping that would kickstart a new Marvel family book. But it didn't. In fact, what happened to the character after all that really got my goat. I've not been following any Captain Marvel appearance in the New 52, so I can't speak for what they did to the character, but I can't imagine it was anything good. Now, or now Superman is absolutely my favorite character of all time, but I would love to see a real knocked-down, drag-out fight between the two characters, even if Superman was bruised, banged up, and powerless afterward. Watching him come back from something like that and maybe gaining some respect for Captain Marvel would be an awesome story. Ain't gonna happen. I'm gonna put this email back on pause and say, you know, I... Believe me, dude, I understand, you know, this whole battle royale thing that people like with Captain Marvel and Superman, but ultimately, I just don't think it... it works very well in-universe, all right? The fact of the matter is... It's not just that Captain Marvel's powers are very similar to Superman. Captain Marvel's powers are actually paranormal. They're based in the supernatural. They're based in magic, all right? If Captain Marvel punches a regular human in the head as hard as he can, that guy's head's going to fucking explode. It's as simple as that, right? And Superman is vulnerable to magic. It affects him the same way that it affects everybody else. No more, no less. And so that means if, if Captain Marvel hauls off and punches Superman right in the face, hey, dude, as much as I love Superman, his head's going to fucking explode too. So there's really no logical argument anyone can make that says that Captain Marvel won't win that fight. He's going to win the fight. I mean, there's going to be two hits. Captain Marvel hits Superman... Superman hits the ground. It's as simple as that. He's probably not getting back up. Ever. But for some reason, Superman's vulnerability to magic gets overlooked every time he and Marvel fight each other, and I just don't understand why. The only thing I can think of is the fact that I don't think that DC likes Superman. I don't think they appreciate him at all. But there's still enough loyalty there that they're not going to let an acquired property like Captain Marvel beat what is still their flagship character. Not gonna fucking happen. So somehow, these battles become real battles, as opposed to, let's face it, as opposed to what they really should be, on paper, Captain Marvel massacring Superman. It's no more complicated than that. So, anyway. That's just my opinion. You don't have to agree if you don't want to, but there you have it. Get back into Mark's email, though. He writes, As for the DC properties and how they're being used, and sometimes abused, by the media... 
I don't want to cry foul because sometimes they get it right. But, man, when they get it wrong, I'm almost embarrassed to be a DC fan. Superman Returns, I'm not even getting into that. That's an email for another day. But Brian Singer should stop making superhero movies already. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, I've said my piece about uh, Superman Returns uh, in the past. It was in a, you know, a, a previous episode. I decided, you know what, I need to get right up and just give you guys my honest-to-God feeling about what I think of Superman Returns. And suffice it to say, it's not very good. All right, I went through all of the different things about Superman Returns that I think are just, I'm sorry, they're just fucking bullshit, all right? It's, it's, honestly, it's as simple as that. And anyway, if you really want to go back and listen to that episode, you can. It was during my uh, Superman Begins miniseries. The uh, title of it, um, as I recall, actually, I'm just going to look it up real quick. Yeah, here it is. This is episode number 14. The subject, uh, or rather the title of the episode is uh, Superman Begins Interlude. Magnus remembers Superman Returns. And I pretty much give you both barrels of what I think of Superman Returns. So if you really want to go back and listen to that, be my guest. As to Brian Singer making superhero movies already, look, people listening to this are entitled to believe, I guess, whatever they like to believe. So... I'm not going to apologize if what I say offends anybody, though, because my honest opinion is that Brian Singer is a child molester and he belongs in fucking prison. All right? It's as simple as that. Now, what he is or is not guilty of has nothing to do with my opinion about Superman Returns. All right? I hated that movie long before it came out that Brian Singer is apparently some kind of a pederast. All right? I, you know, the, I guess the allegations that have been made against him, that, don't get me wrong, it's not like that helps anything, but I honestly, my God's honest view is the guy should just stop making movies and go to fucking prison, okay? What I've heard, uh, you know, which are the same stories as the rest of you, it just seems to me like there's way too much smoke there for there to be no fire, all right? This has some basis in reality. And keep in mind, I mean, we're going back now to his apt pupil days when a lot of young boy extras on the set came forward with very similar types of stories. And you can only hear that so many times before you start thinking, you know what? I think something really did happen there. And anyway, and it does kind of have some kind of an impact on what, on how much I enjoy the man's films. Now, now, keep in mind, I was never a huge Brian Singer guy to begin with. You know, I always thought that The Usual Suspects was a sort of schlocky, paint-by-numbers crime movie that had a kind of interesting twist ending and a badass cast. If you ask me, The Usual Suspects, as a film, rises and falls on how good that cast is. And any... I, I'm actually convinced that you could have the same movie, same director, same script, same everything, but if you didn't have that cast performing in those roles, the movie would just fall apart. All right, it's honestly it's schlock. All right, it's it's the kind of crime sort of caper movie you've seen it a thousand fucking times. It's got a it's got a cool twist ending, but that's about it. And it's the cast that really makes that movie work. The actors really do. So, um. And then you get into things like his X-Men run. Now, honestly, the first X-Men movie, I can kind of give Singer a little bit of a mulligan in that he was, like, apparently, he he thought he would have an an extra year to make that movie. And he didn't. It ended up getting moved uh, forward, for God knows what reason, from the summer of 2001 to the summer of 2000. And the movie didn't come together as, as smoothly as it might have. And, you know, I guess we'll never know how things might have turned out. But it just, I don't know. It, even on that basis, though, I feel like the first X-Men movie is pretty overrated. I just don't think it's all that good a movie. 
X2 is better, but to me, what it does is it sort of emphasizes the point that Brian Singer is not a visual filmmaker. And when it comes to, you know, these big, huge, action-packed comic book movies, you can only have so many scenes of characters just sitting around talking to each other before you're like, you know, dude, can't you just, like, punch Magneto in the head or something like that? I mean, ultimately, I just want to see a fight see some action, and I have Bobby's, uh, Bobby Drake's mom saying, well, have you tried not being a mutant? Yeah, well, we all know what that scene is actually is, sim- you know, is like symbolizing. I mean, there's a metaphor going on there. And I don't know. And, you know, Days of Future Past, I think it was, a, it was kind of a step up. But at the same time, it, to me, it kind of emphasizes the point that Brian Singer, whether he's a child molester or not, and I think... I'm kind of. I, I kind of think he might be. I, I think he is. <sighs> He's just kind of a dick, all right. He's just a jerk of a human being, all right. To the best of my knowledge, and I'm not a huge X-Men guy, but to the best of my knowledge, the idea of Hank McCoy having this sort of transformational thing going, where he he gets angry and he becomes this big blue hairy beast, you know, that's something that fucking that that Brian Singer invented. All right, only to cap, uh, capitalize on the sort of incredible Hulk largesse that was going on at the time that Days of Future Past went into production. He wanted his own version of the Incredible Hulk, basically is what it comes down to. He wanted a Hulk in his movie, and he found a way to invent one. And so, anyway. And then you get into... Uh, you, you get into uh, Quicksilver. Now... It had already been announced that Quicksilver was going to appear in uh, Age of Ultron, right? Everybody knew that. And so Brian Singer took it upon himself to create his own version of Quicksilver and use that in his movie. And it just feels like he was trying to steal Joss Whedon's thunder, you know? Which, again, is just a colossal prick move, you know? And so all of that... Combined with the fact, let's not forget, the man's probably a child molester. It's, it's not so much that the guy should stop making superhero movies, although there's that. It's not even just that the guy's a complete dickhead, although there's that. I think the guy just needs to be in fucking prison, okay? That's really, it's simple as that. But anyway, get back into Mark's email. He writes, the Nolan Batman? Well, Batman Begins was good. The Dark Knight was a real entertaining movie, but was not a Batman movie. Even with all the Batman characters in the movie, it still didn't resemble a Batman story. I'm sure there'll be people hating on me for that, but that's just how I feel. Heck, I haven't even seen The Dark Knight Rises. When I saw Bane, I figured the whole movie was, uh, was going to be another Nolan reimagining. But since I didn't see it, I can't truly complain about it. Starting watching Gotham now, and now I've stopped. Enough said about that. The Flash is fantastic, and I think I have as much enthusiasm about it as I had for Smallville. Would love to talk about Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and beyond, but I think I've said enough. There'll be more time for that later. Anyway, I will always remain your friend, Mark Lax. And Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to write in. Um, first off, I just, I really agree with a lot of what you're saying here. I, uh, honestly, I really do feel like, you know, feel like you're onto something, especially when it comes to, um, the, the, uh, Nolan Batman films. Now, full disclosure, at some point, I'm going to sit down with, uh, Professor Allen and we're going to talk about the entire Chris Nolan Batman, uh, trilogy. And the way I, I was planning to do it was to have one episode for every single one of the movies. I didn't want to feel like we needed to rush through things. I wanted to give every single movie its own time in the sun, you know? And the reason for doing this is because we're moving to a a very post-Nolan era of Batman now, where I don't think Chris Nolan's Batman is quite the zeitgeist of things that it used to be. And so I think it may actually be possible now to take a look back and try to have a little bit of objectivity. And so I, you know, uh, sent a message to Professor Allen about it, told him what I had in mind, that, you know, what I'm, in, what I'm envisioning here isn't exactly like a, 
like a Chris Nolan bash fest. It's basically just an opportunity to look back at each film, talk about the cool things, talk about the shitty things, you know, what worked, what didn't, what maybe could have been done better, etc. The idea is not to have a, a sort of a tantrum about it so much as it's just to be objective, you know? And so I could think of really nobody uh, better in the podcasting community than uh, Professor Allen. Um, his reputation kind of precedes him when it comes to just maturity. You know, he's just, he, he's not really given to losing his mind and, and, and ranting about things and having these big temper tantrums and shit like the, the way I do sometimes. Professor Allen doesn't do that. And so, you know, just to kind of give myself a little bit of credibility when I finally do, you know, sit down and start talking about those movies, I wanted it, I, I, I kind of wanted it to be understood that this isn't going to be me bashing on the movies, but it's not going to be me gushing about them either. It's just going to be me and Professor Allen calmly, rationally analyzing these movies, talking about them, but not necessarily with an agenda to criticize or for that matter, to uh, blindly praise them, just to be completely objective. That's what I'm shooting for here. And as I say, there's really nobody uh, better to, you know, with whom to do that than Professor Allen. So that's, that's really the, uh, the uh, agenda there. So now, I got really a shitload more emails to go through here, but I think, you know, a, a, a half hour worth of emails, not bad. So um, I think that's going to be pretty much it uh, for me, at least for this week. Now, as to next week, um, uh, I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be continuing, I should say, my Women in Comics series. I'm going to be talking about the first four issues of the Peter David Supergirl series. So come back for that, because I really freaking love this series. And if you remember, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a, uh, uh, during the uh, Extinction Level Event miniseries, I did a show with Tom Panarese about uh, the final night. And I made a point of skipping over the Supergirl tie-in with the final night, I guess, event. And the reason for that was because I knew I was gonna be coming back to Supergirl in this series. And so I wanted to save the final night tie-in uh, for that uh, uh, for that episode, for next week's show. But otherwise, I would have talked about it. Just that one issue, you understand. Would have talked about it uh, back when uh, Tom Panarese and I were gabbing about the final night. So, anyway. So that's basically that stuff. Now, um, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So, uh, bye everybody. I will see you next week. Okay. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick easy and can help you spread the word about your show 
I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.